How's it going? This is Captain Cam with Blackbird Guide Services, and I will be your host for today's episode of Eastern Current. And today our guest is Dylan Barker, who is a guide out of South Carolina in the Charleston area, mainly targeting redfish on fly. Uh, but Dylan's interesting. He's got a pretty vast background in, in photography and videography, and he's applied that in ways to his guide business that have been really interesting and fun to watch. So we're going to talk a little bit about photography, some videography. We're going to talk fly fishing, flood tide fishing, you name it, it'll be on there. Hope you enjoy. We're excited to announce the Eastern Current Online Angler Series that will be kicking off this spring with a three-tournament, artificial-only redfish series. You can fish all three tournaments in the series or just one. The tournaments will be hosted through the iAngler app and you can participate from any state. The first tournament will be March 24th and 25th with an online captain's meeting the night before hosted through our Facebook page. The redfish tournament will consist of your longest three redfish per day under 32 inches. This is just the start to our online angler series and we're excited to bring you many more tournaments for redfish, speckled trout, flounder, and more. If you're interested in fishing the Spring Redfish Trail, be sure to stay tuned as we will be bringing you registration information next week, April 14th, as well as a link to the full list of tournament rules and regulations. Feel free to reach out to us on Instagram as well, and if you have any questions between now and then, we're here to answer them. If I'm fishing a jig, you can bet it's going to be an I Strike Texas Eye. Dave and Ralph at iStrike have built the most versatile and durable lineup of jigs in the saltwater industry. Whether you need a finesse presentation on spooky wintertime redfish, or you need to hop a big swim bait on deep water structure for cobia and bull redfish, iStrike has the jig for you. Be sure to check out their website and use code EC10 for up to 40% off all iStrike products and 10% off all Z-Man products. The code can only be used at iStrikeFishing.com and you can find the code and the link to their website in the podcast show notes. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Eastern Current on Patreon. There you'll be able to find our weekly Ramp Talk podcast where my guide buddies and I discuss our day-to-day fishing on the way to the boat ramp in the morning. You will also be able to find extra video content that you can't find on YouTube. If you've loved listening to the Eastern Current podcast, subscribing to our Patreon is a great way to help support the show. Dylan, how's it going, man? Good, Cam. How you doing? I'm doing good. I can't complain. Dylan and I tried to record a podcast, what was it, two weeks ago? Yeah, I think about- my, my youngest one got COVID. <laughs> Luckily, the rest of us didn't get it. But I'm glad we finally got you and it came together. Yeah, me too, man. Yeah, and I'm glad, I'm glad everything's uh, going a little better on your end now as well. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, well, I, I, I'm really excited to have you on for a handful of reasons. One, I think the Charleston fishery is always really interesting to talk about um, in comparison to our fishery. And then also, uh, your your photography and videography is is kind of a level above, in my opinion, than, than the, the large majority of stuff that I see, especially from, not to say guides 
content and in, in photography is bad by any means, but um, you you got to figure it out, man. I, I wouldn't say uh, figure it out completely, but <laughs> it, it's definitely something that I've spent, um, you know, a, a large chunk of my time honing in yeah. um, just as much as the, the guide side of stuff. Uh, yeah. So it, it, it does show for sure because we compared to um, some people, you know, I, really generally an iPhone will or uh, any phone pins this device uh, for, for a fish pick. But I do take that one step further a lot of times. Yeah, no, and it, it really does show. I mean, uh, I was perusing through your Instagram profile uh, before I got you on here just to come up with ideas and, and to um, just re-familiarize myself with your work, and I was like, oh, my God, what can I do What can I do better to be more like Dylan? Um, so, man, it's, it's really impressive. I, I recommend everyone check out his, his profile at some point. Uh, just, just to, if, if anything, get inspiration, um, to better their work. Well, Hey man, I really, I really appreciate that. It's really, really extremely kind of you to say that. So Uh, thank you. No worries. Well, why don't we start with, you know, where did it all begin? Um, how long have you been fishing? How did you, how did you get into it? How'd you get into guiding? Are, Are you from, you know, South Carolina, stuff of that nature? Yeah. So I was born in Texas. Um, and in San Antonio, uh, my dad was in the Air Force. So uh, I, I, I didn't grow up in San Antonio. Um, I spent part of my childhood in Atlanta, uh, outside Atlanta, this town called Gwinnett. And then uh, people who actually live in Atlanta will be like, that's not Atlanta. But uh, <laughs> yeah, close, close enough for my dad to you know, drive downtown and work. And um, But then both my parents are from the upstate of South Carolina. And that's where I consider myself from being from is the upstate and I grew up in a town called Piedmont outside of Greenville. So that, and my dad's always fished, he's an outdoorsman. And, uh, he kind of brought me up on that side of things. Um, he, he was never a fly fisher, mm-hmm. but you know, from getting started in the outdoors and doing things like that, definitely, definitely came from my dad and his family. They, they have a huge chunk of land that he grew up on, you know, it was basically farmland and he, he grew up working on farms and, doing stuff with cattle and uh you know real real country guy you know through and through going sure. going crappy fishing with his dad and doing things like that so it, it was something that just kind of I got brought up in um and then uh you know from there uh we would take you know every summer we'd, we'd go come down to the coast and, and fish and I fell deeply in love with saltwater fishing uh I, I've, I've you know trout fished a lot I've done a ton of really all kinds of fishing. I've fished the Pacific Northwest. I've fished uh, the Northeast, the Southeast, um, and something about Southeastern saltwater fishing just holds a special place in my heart. And I don't know if that's from just spending time with my dad doing that or if it's from the excitement of it. Uh, but, you know, it's always super fun uh, now because now, uh, now I have the, you know, I've got to pay the dad tax off where for years he took me fishing and stuff like that. So now he, he gets to come down and I get to push him <laughs> around on the skip all day and uh, have him, you know, hook me in the leg with a fly and stuff. And <laughs> Dads are good this. at that. Dads are really good at that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He, he, he loves to um, always poke me about, you know, he always catch a bigger fish than me and he always <laughs> lets me know. It. So does your dad still live in Texas? No, no, no. So, um, they, 
we moved to uh, Greenville. Um, both, so I grew up 30 minutes from both sets of my grandparents. And they lived there their whole lives. And then my parents, they bought a house and moved back there in 2008. And uh, they still live in Greenville now. So oh, it's just a quick drive down whenever we want to do something. So nice. We probably don't see each other as much as I'd like to, but, um, you know, whenever he gets to come down, it's fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so tell me about y- your background in photography. I- is it something that you started at a young age? Is it something that you studied in, in college maybe? So I've always been creative. And something that I started on really early uh, I vividly remember YouTube becoming a thing <laughs> and being like, oh my gosh, I can watch stuff like just people. And it's just people, right? It was, it was people making videos. It was, right. it was random content. That was not a, this high production movie or high production um, TV show. And it was stuff that people were filming on home cameras and posting out to the world. Cause we'd all seen home videos at that point. Right. And home photos and things of that nature. Yeah. My mom had a nicer camera and would, would take photos, but you know, it was not something that was like peeking into other people's lives kind of like that uh, made available. And I always had this like itch and like, Oh, I want to, I want to create content. I had no goal in mind. I was like, I just want to create stuff. Huh? I want to show how old were you when you were like, I want to create content? Um, that's a good question. Probably like 11. Wow. I think. You, yeah, were, you, around. Were, you were early on it, man. Yeah. And so what happened was um, I, my parents would buy, so they used to skateboard all the time or do other stuff like that. And uh, my parents bought me this little flip camera. And um, I used to just film all this stuff and run around doing things like that and just film skateboarding or film really whatever was happening and I'd mess around with stuff like that all the time. And, uh, shortly after that, my, my mom, so my mom's actually some contact. My mom's a full-time blogger. No um, so way. She also, yeah. So she also creates content for a living. Um, <laughs> and awesome. so she's been, she's been doing that for a long time. And my mom had this copy of Photoshop elements lying around, you know, back when you can actually buy a program an Adobe program. Yep, on a CD. I'm, I'm very familiar with that. Yeah. You know, the good old days before subscription-based uh, Adobe products. Yeah. And um, so uh, she gave me this copy of Photoshop elements she had. She was like, there, try this. Like, let's go mess with this. So I was like telling her, I'm like, oh, it's like graphic design sounds so cool. Or like making things. She was like, where to try this thing out? And I used the crap out of that thing. I mean, I was on that. I was on Photoshop elements all the time. I started making stuff and making stuff and just figuring out the program on my own. Um, there was really no, it was, it was elements, right? So it didn't have all the features of Photoshop. Mm-hmm. It was a little easier to digest, mm-hmm. but I would just, I used that so much and learned how to make graphics and work with text and work with stuff. And I didn't really have a rule book. I didn't really have anyone teaching me. So I think that really played a part in uh, my development of, of photography and stuff. So later on, I did actually go to college for graphic design. Oh, cool. And that, that's actually what I did. And I was a graphic designer, freelance for a long time. And I've worked at marketing firms and other things like that. And uh, even for, um, you know, AFCO Marshware, I was a, a graphic designer and a marketing coordinator for them. So I, I've been around doing that. And it's just something that I still love to do. But I just kind of realized I didn't want to do it as a career. 
um, especially after working in the industry doing it. Um, but the photography stuff's a little more interesting, right? Because it's always been a direct thing, right? You, you, you put a camera in your face, you, you click the button, and you get the photo. So something that I started a little later on is I, I would take video all the time. And it's funny because now I do more photography than I do video. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's like video is the thing instead of photography. <laughs> yeah. so I was doing video earlier on, and now I do more photography probably than video. Um, however, I do think that, uh, just that development early on, just like kind of just figuring out and just, just doing it and just taking photos and taking videos, of everything and playing with things and making things all weird, uh, play a big role in that kind of have more how I got started in the creative side of stuff. Yeah, no, that's uh that's great context. And it explains a lot, uh, in my opinion, when you look at your work. Because it's not, it's obviously not someone that is picking up a camera for the first time, and it's definitely not someone that's taking pictures with their iPhone, um, which is crazy now because you you know you always hear people say, "Oh, you don't need a you know a a, a DSLR anymore." Oh, you know the, the iPhone is just as good as says, which in some cases, yes, um, but man, they, there's nothing like. You just don't, it doesn't, you can't get the creativity, in my opinion, from a iPhone that you can from a DSLR, uh, uh, as far I've, as just quality of, of the image, I guess. Absolutely. And I, I've shot some really cool stuff off phones. Um, and uh, I've shot a really bunch of cool stuff off phones, man, but just like it does not compare. Um, and I, I'm a firm believer. And because the way I started, I didn't start with a really nice camera. I don't think anyone should start with a really nice camera. It's kind of like, um, I, so I was also a musician growing up, and I did that for a long time. And, and even to this day, I still play music. But one of the number one things they taught you was, hey, you got to learn the scales. you got to learn all this technical stuff. Mm-hmm. And the argument's always, well, what about, you know, this guy? What about this famous musician? They don't follow the rules. And it's like, well, you got to know the rules if you want to break the rules. So I think I kind of use that in the, on the photography space as well. When I really started to get really into it, I learned how to use exposure properly, how to make your eyes so, you know, just right. Because, uh, you know, nowadays people are learning on mirrorless cameras. Yep. You can just throw that sucker on manual. It's going to shoot awesome. I mean, you know, it, it is. It's just going to yeah. shoot way better. That's the thing. Know. A mirrorless camera that even on manual, <laughs> it, you don't have to adjust it. Like, well, well, like, you know, generally, you, you can, what I mean is like basic settings, right? You only have to adjust like a couple things. It's not what we had to used to do with a DSLR where you could shoot it and it, you don't know what the photo is going to look like if you don't know what you're doing. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, know, I know what you're like, saying. Sorry if that was confusing. But no, like, no. Mirrorless, it's just going to show you. You're going to be like, "Wow, this is blown out. Maybe I should change something." And you yeah. have to, and you physically see that. Um, but now, you know, you can just look at it and be like, "Oh, well, I'll just move this dial." And like, you can have a super basic understanding of what's happening, and that thing's going to shoot totally okay. Yeah, you really um, can. Yeah. And and the other crazy thing is, a lot of cameras nowadays. Um, I mean, even my I, I shoot with Canons, and the um, I have a 5D and a 90D. In the 90D. I can put it on like a live feed mode, I guess is what you would call it. Where like 
you can adjust the exposure, you can adjust the aperture, the the uh, shutter speed, and it will show you what the picture in real time will look like on the screen. <laughs> it's, oh wow, it's crazy. Um, nice. But yeah, I mean, it, it has gotten to a point where it's definitely much easier to use. And I'm with you though. I I think it is. It is important to learn the basics, um, and just to just to give you a small background on myself, just because we've, you know, this is the first time we've ever actually had a conversation, um, is I, I went to school for photography as well. Um, and I mean, 90% of the photography classes that I took were all in film and dude, I'm so glad I don't have to shoot film. I mean, I spent, uh, at one semester I had two classes in a row I think like three or four days a week that were uh, three hours long each, so six hours total. And generally speaking, like you would take all your photos outside of class and then you would come into the dark room. And so for three days out of the week, I was in the dark room for six hours a day. <laughs> I was like, Great. Yeah, I'm cool. out. I don't want to shoot with film ever again. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's super important to understand the, the fundamentals of exposure and and uh, f-stops and how you get a blurred out background, how you get a really crisp, you know, foreground and background, things of that, that nature. Absolutely. I, I think that, um, you know, one of my major breakthroughs with some of the photos I do was like at what I'm shooting at, at what distance I'm at what f-stop I need to throw on to have my subject completely in focus and the background right after that blurred. And that, and that is a skill in itself learning at like, okay, I'm this far away. Uh, you know, I'm on a 70 millimeter lens or an 85 millimeter lens. I need to throw on an f-stop at 4.5 and just like knowing that, um, and doing it on the spot, it, it changes the photo. Like, cause in that, and that's also from, you know, taking thousands of photos, and then going back and being like, oh, I should have, I wish I had more F-stop here, you know, or less F-stop here. Yep. Or, oh, man, this ISO needs to go down a lot. Or my exposure is a little whack. And it's like, I can fix some of this stuff in post, but I don't really love doing a lot in post. Uh, it just, there's some stuff I will do. And I actually love shooting and turning photos into this grainy mess. Uh, but there's always, it always happens from like, I'm throwing on more and more grain. I'm like, this is just ruining the photo. I'm just completely <laughs> ruining it. Um, but sometimes it, it just calls for it. Um, especially for me, uh, skies and sunsets, mm-hmm. um, anything that involves like landscapey photos, I love adding grain to it. It just, I feel like it adds more depth. Um, not everyone feels that same way, but you know, it's just little things like that. The more you, more and more you shoot, like, and people say this all the time, it's like, you know, you, you kind of just got to do it. Um, you can, you can watch a YouTube video, you know, you can listen to me talk about it. You talk about it, anything, it's, it's anything in life. Like you just kind of need to start doing it. Um, you do need a direction, but the, the, if you were to go out and shoot a thousand photos this week, you'd be a thousand photos better. You know, every photo is going to make you a little, a little better along the way. For sure. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. And to your point on the, uh, on the grain thing, um, it's funny you say that cause I was, when I was looking through your Instagram profile, you have a, I, I think it's you and, and a couple buddies on your boat, and it's like during a sunset, and your the boat is kind of 
I can't remember if it's mid-turn or something. But I was like, God, is that a painting? And then I like zoomed in on it and I was like, oh, it's, I think it's because you, you must have added a little bit of grain to that picture and it made it look like very, I don't know what the word is for it, but like, I mean, it's a beautiful photo, but I, I can't think of the exact word that I'm trying to use, but it, it, it gave it an extra element of kind of like just awesomeness. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I to- totally know what you mean. Um, and that happens too when, um, I think I know the shot you're talking about and you know, that, that, that's a, on top of that, uh, it, that's a punched in crop. Um, so there was actually a lot more to that photo and I had to crop it in for Instagram. And mm-hmm. I was like, man, this already looks a little, got a little bit of grain to it. And I was like, let's just pull the highlights. Let's just pull everything out. Let's, let's raise the shadows. Let's make this nice and nice and, uh, not flat. Uh, cause there is a lot of depth to the photo, but make it more, like you said, painting esque. give it more of a, that grain, I just feel like gives it a feel. Yeah. Um, it changed the photo. It's like you said, I mean, it really did change the photo and gave it its own character. And I love the way water looks, um, especially the water I shoot here in, in the low country uh, on the sunsets. Oh my gosh. Um, one of my favorite things to shoot ever are clouds. And I never post clouds, but these, I'll shoot clouds all the time. <laughs> and I, I love the way clouds look under that grain. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I did shoot a photo. Oh man. I don't even remember when it was. I was in the Keys. And um, I shot it in April 2021, so I guess two years ago, but not terribly long ago. And it's one of my favorite pictures I've ever taken. And uh, it was this cloud. Th- these clouds are just rolling in the keys. And um, the, it, the sun was setting, and the sun had dropped to a point where it was only hitting the tops of the clouds mm-hmm. that were rolling, not the bottoms. And uh, that's one of my favorite photos I've ever taken. It was because I have these palm trees all blacked out and it's just loaded with grain and it just looks like a painting. You know, it's the same, it's a similar, similar, similar idea. Similar look and feel. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, let's get into, so when did you, are you, are you fairly new to guiding now? Oh yeah. Did you just start? I'm a newbie. This is year one. Man. Congratulations. Um, as of, January as of now, end of January, I'll be self-employed for uh, one full year. So nice. How how was that first full year? Hard, um, but fun. Yeah. So it, 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 there, it, it's difficult um, getting your footing. I say that was the most difficult part was yeah. uh, finding that footing, and um, you know, for for a lot of it. Uh, I was nervous on stepping on other people's toes, um, which looking back on is like is a good thing, but also kind of a negative thing. I kind of hindered myself a little bit when I could have been doing more. Yeah, I know, um, I know the feeling on that, but yeah, keep. Yeah, going. I just really didn't want to make any waves, or and there was a long time, man. I had my license and everything. I wasn't even advertising when I was guiding. I was only taking people that uh, I was getting. I had buddies that'd be like, "Hey, you want this trip?" Mm-hmm. And I take it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't advertising at all. That like. Hey, I'm I'm a guide. I am I am a captain. You know that is my business. Come come fish with me. And uh, that all changed kind of towards the end of this year. Um, I went to this uh, summit um, with uh, is AFTA, the American Fly Fishing Trade Association, 
And I got to meet and talk with a bunch of really awesome people in the industry, uh, especially uh, Benny Blanco and Hillary Hutchinson, uh, who are two really big names. And, and they encouraged me to, you know, go out on a limb and, and kind of like trust yourself and uh, enroll with that. And uh, I've been doing that since. So and it's been, I'm going to be honest, been really, really good since that. I'm glad I kind of took that leap. It is a leap of faith. I mean, it really is. It, um, it changes perspective on a lot of stuff. Um, you know, there's people I thought I was friends with that once I did that, I'm not friends with them anymore. <laughs> or, you know, like it's just, it's changed relationships. It's changed several things um, for good and for weird, but overall I'm super happy with it. Good, man. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you and excited to see where it goes from here. Um, so, are you only doing fly fishing or are you doing kind of, you know, whatever as far as fly no, fishing or spin fishing? So I, I do light tackle. Okay. Uh, I, I would rather fly fish. Mm-hmm. My, so my number one goal, I, I mean, dude, I live for fly fish. That, that is like my thing. That is what I want to do all the time. I wake up in the morning. I want to fly fish. I'm like going to bed. I'm like researching stuff. I'm fly fishing. I'm, <laughs> looking at new patterns i'm looking at fly lines i'm checking out new rods i'm messing with my reel and seeing if there's something to do different with me with the reel or push poles or it's just the whole process for me is something that that takes a hold of me like a like a demon <laughs> i just i can't i can't escape it i, I love it so much um it, it fills me in a way that i can't really explain to people um and you know one of those ways i, I kind of found out how to explain it to people was through taking them just taking them fly fishing on my skiff. Yeah. And most people get it after that. And um, I've been lucky enough that most of my clients want to fly fish. So I get to experience that, but I, I'm, I'm not beyond, uh, you know, light tackle and, and getting out there and having just showing someone a great experience. Cause man, not everyone's going to want to fly fish. It's, it's a pretty niche, pretty niche things in the grand scheme of fishing. Um, yeah. It's a really big industry, but saltwater fly fishing, uh, is, is pretty small compared to fishing in general. So you have to have that open mind. I don't do any live bait at all. It's just not my, not my style. I don't really want to do it. Um, it's not, I don't feel like I'm above it by any means. Uh, I just get that thrill of hunting down a fish and actively pulling to a fish. Um, there's a lot of really, really good guys here already who kind of fill that gap. Like there's a lot of live bait dudes who have way better equipment, way better grass from what's going on. Um, and I would rather go chase fish in the grass. So yeah. I think it works out really well. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I, I, you know, I feel like I'm fairly similar. Like I love fly fishing. It's, it's been an obsession for a long time. Um, I, but I, I, you know, I've always loved spin fishing too. And, and I enjoy doing that as well. And my, my big thing, especially for just, I guess, guiding in general is like, man, some days are just tough to fly fish. Like it's blowing 25. It's, it's overcast and it's drizzling. I'm like, man, if they're not belly crawling, we're not getting a shot on fly, you know? Um, South Carolina and where you live might be very different. But it's it, it can be tough around here if it's if it's hard to see them, or if 
they're not really making themselves seen. Like if they're not belly crawling or, you know, waking around. Absolutely. And that was something I happened to be talking about today to my girlfriend. And we were just talking about uh, South Florida and versus here and just talking about fisheries. Uh, you know, normal boyfriend-girlfriend conversation. And um, we were talking about it, and I was like, yeah, I mean, in South Florida, if you're having – the tarpon are off, just go catch some redfish or go, go try to find some bonefish or, or some permit or some snook up in the, in the mangroves. You know, you jump from one side to the other. You can go to different fisheries, and they have their own little ecosystem. I was like, here, if the redfish are off, that's it. That's, that's, that's all we really got. I mean, you can go do, you know, sea trout or – or flounder, or these other, uh, I mean, I guess lady fish, no really targets them like that, but there's plenty of things to fish for around here, but with the inshore skiff fly fishing, it's uh, it's tough if the redfish are off, or if it's conditions that the redfish aren't going to eat in. Um, and that's, that's it, it's hard to plan around those days, but I guess it's just kind of like, that's our job, right? Is to just kind of figure it out. Um, and know uh, So I'll spend, you know, Number one thing is just spending every day on the water that I can. If I'm not having a boat problem or if I don't have to get other work done, I'm I'm gonna be out in the water. So I'm just gonna I just wanna see what the fish are out and what they're doing. And that was the best advice I ever got given to me by an older guide. I was like, Well, how'd you figure out this area? He was like, I came here a week straight and I by, by area I was talking about like a specific creek, right? Mm-hmm. This is one spot. He's like, I came to the same spot a week straight seven different days and I hit it on three different tides different each day and he was like and that's how you figure out and you push every single section of this creek he's like and that's how you figure it out I was like what if there wasn't fish in it he's like I pulled it anyway so that's the only way you're ever going to know what's actually going on and when the fish are moving through there I was like dang it just takes that level of commitment some of the stuff to finding these fish Um, and that will you know in that way if it's it's one of those days like it's overcraft it's crap the fish aren't moving around like normal like, hey, I know these fish come up on this edge up here. We're going to have to blind cast, but the fish are in there. You know, we have a shot of at least getting one on the fly if that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I found success. It's just understanding, like, hey, there's a school of fish in here. It's not going to be, you know, perfect tailing fish, belly crawling, like, shot. But they're in this creek, and we're going to get them. So. That's awesome. That's a great piece of advice. And that sound like it came from a, an extremely hardworking man. <laughs> oh, yes. It absolutely did. Uh, that was one of the better pieces of advice that I've ever gotten. Um, but he, uh, he's, he's, he's hardcore. You know, he's, he's, been a, he's a great friend and teacher to me. So That's good. Everybody needs one of those. Absolutely. Um, so tell me about uh, every time I have talked to someone from – so you're in Charleston, right? Yeah, I'm in Charleston. You fish around Charleston. Okay. Um, every time I talk to someone from South Carolina, I always want to talk about flood tide fishing just because I feel like other than maybe, is it North Florida that also gets like really, really good flood tide fishing? Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the low country, uh, in the low country, what would consider to be flood tide territory is going to extend um, from really like you can go up to the Merle's Inlet area. It really kicks off in Charleston and mm-hmm. a little bit north of Charleston towards Allendale and Bulls Bay and some of these places. And starting there, it goes all the way through Jacksonville, Florida. And from here to there, we have uh, 
most of the U.S. is marshland, and that's kind of what um, holds all the flood tide fish and has uh, areas where fish will get up on the flats and do that. Got it. Okay, so, yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Jacksonville, Florida is one of those places I feel like I always see uh, pictures and whatnot of, of tailing redfish and people catching, like, 12 on a flood tide. And I'm like, uh, I didn't even know that was possible. Um, so we, we, <laughs> have, we have flood tide fishing here, but it's definitely, it's definitely different. Or I don't want to say it's not as, I don't think it's as consistent as what you guys see. So I like, I like picking people's brains that live down in South Carolina on, on how they catch tailors and how they, what are their favorite flies and how do they approach them? Because this past summer was actually a little bit different. We had like a good day. You might see 10 to 15, but you know, the past five years previous to that was like a good day was like you get five to at the very best 10 shots. Um, so what's your, what, what's your favorite fly for flood tide fishing for flood tide fish? Mm-hmm. So this past year, I, I, I did a lot. So one of my favorite flies is, is a quan. Okay. And then so a merkin. So yeah, they're very similar. Very similar flies. So and is, is the the quan is so just so people know the quan is like a crab shaped fly. And is the merkin the one with the arm, the one, the one crab arm off the back? Yeah, it can it can have a strong arm. Um, you can do it also with, with like feathers. Okay. That's the more the way is the two feathers coming off, but you can also do it as a strong arm. Okay. I always do it with feathers just because I, I just don't tie with strong arm stuff. Um, it, I think it works just as well, but I actually like to do it on a jig hook. And um, man, that thing crushes. I mean, the Merkin just, just crushes. Uh, so does the Quan. Um, but that, that, it's about crab patterns. The most very general crab pattern. The Quan is generally smaller, I would say, body shape than, than the Merkin is. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything like that, and you know, I'll modify them and have have smaller ones. Like I'm looking at one right here from this past flood season I got in my hand. That was just, uh, I used a zonker strip off the back instead of any kind of feathering, but it still has, you know, the, the silly like arms coming off of it, and it was in a smaller hook size towards the end of the season. Um, but a crab fly. I guess it's the best way to put it. It's always going to be a crab fly. And uh, black and purple is normally a go-to. But if it's not black and purple, um, I actually really, really like throwing tans. Tans and oranges, especially in the later season. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of, I've also had success with, uh, I guess it would be just considered natural colors. Either natural colored flies or black and purple. Black and purple, yeah. So it, is the water around Charleston... Is it like tannic mainly, or is it green and clear and you know? It it changes, changes. It changes, you know. So it also depends on the weather we're having. Right now, it's crystal clear. I mean, our water is super clear in the winter time. It clears up. I mean, I don't know if you've seen some of the videos I've been posting. Uh, on my stories and stuff, but we'll be pulling over at Oyster Bar, and you know, it's you can see all the way through the water, four feet deep, uh, no problem with the high sun. And um, during the summertime, it is so dirty you can't see anything. 
it's like chocolate milk. However, <laughs> out in like the harbor, it is more of that green water okay. uh, where we're having ocean movement coming in and out. And I normally fish closer to ocean areas anyway, but mm-hmm. our water changes for sure. Right now, it's more of that emerald, that emerald and that blue color. Um, just the water clarity is off the charts. This is this is the clearest time of the year, and uh, it, it does get dark though, and it, it still will be a little murky. Um, you know, it, it's not it's not Caribbean clear or you know Florida Keys clear, but for around here, when I see it this time of year compared to what I'm normally seeing, I'm like, wow, you know, I'm like, this is super clear. Like this is this is the best time of year to sight fish, especially uh, because all these fish for us are are all going off in the low tide and schooling up with just cooler weather, cooler water temps. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, sounds like it's really similar to our area. Um, we, we have, so around Wilmington, North Carolina, where I live, we have the Cape Fear river, which is kind of like its own marsh system. And that's in the winter, it gets kind of tannic, but clear, kind of like sweet tea. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, but just North of that, there's not, many rivers close by, especially like Reisel Beach, you know, Topsail and well, Topsail's got a river fairly close to it. But you know, around all those areas it's like gin clear, like really clear. And I tell people all the time, they're like, What's your favorite time to fish? I'm like, winter. One hundred percent. It's winter. Because I can see everything. And, exactly. And not to mention not can I only see everything the fish are much more likely to be in large schools. And so if you want to f- fly fish, it is like, other than the spring, our, our, our spring is water still pretty dang clear. And the fish are generally in even bigger schools and, um, and they're generally a little bit bigger fish as well. But man, yeah, winter and spring, the best times to fly fish. And still, I feel like, the most people I get that want to fly fish are in the summer. And I'm like, okay, well, you're going to be fishing the singles and you're going to be, you know, you're going to have, I always tell people in the summer because I don't know if, if, um, if Charleston is the same way, but you know, we'll, we'll the, the main thing that you're kind of looking for for us is schools, small schools being like, you know, 10 to 15 rolling down the bank, popping shrimp. Or is like yeah. the dream. That's like your number yeah. one target because those you can see coming from a hundred yards away, and hopefully they just keep doing the same thing all the way down the bank. Or you get belly crawlers, uh, and occasionally you'll get a day where the you know the water's fairly clear, and you can kind of see them. But for the most part, it's 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 those two things. And if it's a belly crawler, which is probably more common than the, you know, the groups coming down the bank, it's like as soon as you see that guy come off the, up off up on the bank and he's eating something, you got about three seconds to get the fly in front of him. Oh, he's just going to disappear and fly right back oh, off. Yeah. He comes up for three seconds, gone, comes up for three seconds, gone. <laughs> and not to mention like the water's dirty. So you gotta, you got to get the fly, like, you know, in an area where he'll see it within those three seconds. So it's not, Oh yeah. He's not leave the fish by three feet. It's like leave the fish by 12 inches. At, that, you know, at most. And, that, and that's a, we, we deal with a similar thing. You know, it's going to be mud banks. It's going to be, they're going to be in creeks with that low tide as that water gets hotter and hotter and hotter throughout the summer. It's just not smart to target these fish on a low tide. Now, 
they'll get trapped in these areas and it's like redfish here i've seen it before i've been in a creek and these redfish just are stuck and they're just sitting there and they're not moving at all uh because they're just trying to survive they're just in there there's not a lot of you know you don't want to try to catch these fish a they're not going to eat probably um but b they don't need that added stress and that kind of water temp with less water in there because there's not a lot of oxygen in the water um they kind of just you know get a little sleepy and kind of like stay in there and they just kind of chill out yeah and it's better to kind of fish alone because they're just trying to they're just trying to get through their day (laughs) um they're they're not they're just sitting in 95 degree water like please make this end yeah exactly Um, do y'all's fish in the summertime do they do they like the little feeder creeks or do they move out to more like main stem type of creeks and it 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 depends. I've always been a huge believer in, even throughout the winter, um, you know, you're going to find these fish off big bodies of water. Like they might be going in the big, like small creek system this time of year. Um, and it's not just this time of year because, you know, we'll see them on massive oyster bed systems. But for example, that cold front we just had, uh, it made that bait scarce. There was no bait after that freeze we just had. Uh, you know, it got down to a real feel of nine degrees here in Charleston. Holy so moly. It was real cold down here and that is not what the fish like. Um, and you know, any kind of, they like consistency. So any kind of like super, super sharp, sharp change in, in air, like pressure or water systems coming through can really mess them up. Um, and that kind of seemed to send them into the creeks a little more deeper. And now we're starting to see fish come back on to the big oyster mounds that's mm-hmm. at least what i've been seeing and hearing and i've been i'm still seeing them schooled up you know to the 50 to the hundreds in these creeks and it's really cool but these in my opinion they're still close to large access like large body water access even when they're in these smaller creeks and i feel like we see that year round i think redfish redfish are lazy and they want to be able to do everything kind of in one area and you know, they want oyster bed access, they want bait access, they want to be safe from dolphins and certain tides. So finding flats like that where they can access large water and large schools of bait will come through, but also be able to hide. I think that's key to finding redfish in the low country. For sure. Yeah, I would say that that rings true. Probably most places that have redfish. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not Florida. <laughs> I feel like yeah. I think Florida's fish are like a different breed. Yeah, Florida, Florida fish are interesting. Um, super spooky. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that actually. I don't have it much. Makes... I don't have much experience fishing in Florida, but the the my God, it must have been about five years ago. I went. I went to Bradenton. Actually, it was six years ago. Went to Bradenton to pick up my um the skiff that I have now, and I fished uh, around Pine Island with a guy. Yeah, yeah. It was unreal. I mean, it's the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Um, and I was like, no, there's no way it can always be like this. But, I mean, we were just pulling these big, you know, grass flats. Yeah. And every time the grass flat had a little circle, circular sand pocket, there'd be like yeah. three redfish and two trout sitting in it. Yeah. Which it's is pretty, crazy. It's pretty, wild. it's pretty wild. Yeah. Totally different kind of like what do you look for <laughs> than where we live? Um, but yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's interesting to think about as far as where to look and 
what are they looking for and you know so on and so forth i love taking ideas from other people in the sense of talking to a florida guy talking to a south florida guy talking to a north florida guy talking to a north carolina guy someone else maybe in buford and just like listening to how they like to attack fish like how they like to get on fish and what they see from their fish because there's a lot of similarities i mean at the end of the day it's a redfish and um you know, whether it's a te- South Texas redfish or a South Carolina redfish or a Keys redfish, all four of them, um, they, they're going to act a certain way and they're going to have certain triggers. Uh, and it's really interesting to, to hear someone, you know, from South Florida be like, oh, well, they like it when you do this. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'm going to try that on my fish and see what happens. And like, you'd be surprised uh, how these fish react to certain techniques. And they're not even in the same environment. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean... At the end of the day, even though sometimes I would I would disagree that we have uh, only one species of red drum because after going to Louisiana a handful of times, I'm like those are definitely a different fish. Um, I don't I don't count those. <laughs> yeah, you can't. You almost can't count those. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm with you, man. I think it's really interesting to talk about the same species in different states and how do people target them? What do they target them with uh, in their techniques and, and trying to apply that to, to um, your fishery. Like I, I'll give you a real quick example. I talked to a guy in Florida who was like, man, this winter all I could get the redfish to eat was a finesse changer. So that's a essentially a game changer, which is a articulating bait fish fly that's just slightly smaller. So it's like, I don't know, four inches. And okay. um I was like, man, you know, all I've all I've ever fished for for redfish flies is like your really typical redfish flies, like quants and quant sliders and you know, seducers and so on and so forth. And I was like, I'm gonna try that on some redfish here and uh holy crap it worked super well (laughs) on on winter fish which is so weird because you're like there's not a ton of like mullet around which you know they're kind of mullet shaped and mullet size but man they took after those micro game changers we use them here as well uh, I think I think this time of year is actually a pretty good time you know most of our bait is really just mullet mulling glass minnows so you can really get away with I think smaller bait fish patterns work really well this time of year yeah I'm with you well I appreciate you walking me through all the flood tide stuff and your techniques and and what you look for I know that you know the when we briefly kind of message each other setting this up you had wanted to um, talk a little bit about conservation in your area so I, I thought I'd give you the uh, give you the floor for that and say your piece. Yeah, for sure, man. And you know, it's something that you know can kind of, kind of tie into what we were just talking about. And and you know, redfish are are different from from place to place. That that is for sure. That is true. And they have their own unique things going on. At the end of the day, it, it is a redfish, uh, but you know, it, it, their blood chemistry changes. You know, there's the the scales and coloring changes from place to place based off what they eat and how they react. 
and, and their instincts are different, um, you know, based off clear water or dirty water. And, but that just brings up the point too, like, you know, a lot of these places, uh, you know, fisheries don't stop at state lines, um, which, which is something that, you know, all states have a bunch of different regulations and control things different ways. Uh, and that's just kind of how we do things. Um, people tend to forget it's all kind of one environment. Um, so something big we do here in Charleston is supporting Charleston Waterkeeper. And it's just water clarity. And, you know, got to be honest, I don't think I've ever met someone who fishes who's like, oh, yeah, I don't want cleaner water. <laughs> Everyone kind of is on board for clean water, yeah. uh, which, you know, I don't eat right crazy. Um, but I would really encourage people uh, who's listening to this um, to just most places actually have a water keeper and have some sort of um, just not a company, but just a, a team working towards cleaner water in your area. Um, and a lot of them are underfunded and a lot of them need help. And it's as much as just going out there and just volunteering for a couple hours to help clean up. Or next time you're out on the boat, you know, just pick up that piece of trash you see. Um, it's not, it doesn't do like a ton, right? You're not making the, the biggest impact in the world just by picking up that one piece of trash, but it makes an impact. And if everyone did it, it would make a worldwide impact, you know? Um, I'm sure when you go out, you see trash in the marsh all the time. Because um, I know I do here. It, yeah. It's kind of depressing. Um, it can be kind of depressing to, to, you know, go out in the marsh and just see a beer can in a creek. And I'm like, you know, four miles away from the nearest access. And it's like, wow, how did this even get here? You know, it just doesn't make sense. Um, so I think things like that uh, are really important and looked over. And I don't want it to sound like an echo chamber either. Uh, but from what I've seen and the people I've talked to, uh, a lot of people hear it and they go, yeah, you know, that's great. I think that's a great idea. And then that's it. That's, that's the extent of it. N n n people aren't really getting on board. So I would just highly, highly encourage people to, to do that and, and try to get on board with those things. Um, if we don't do it, no one's going to do it. So it's really up to us, especially us who take from the water and make our living off of it. Um, it's really important to be involved in that. I agree with you 100%. And, and nothing frustrates me more than what you just said, whereas you talk to people and they're like, oh, yeah, I'll get involved and then nothing, um, which is fine, you know, if, if you're just not that into it. But don't, don't complain about it and then not do anything about it is, is what drives me nuts uh, because yeah. we have a lot of that here in North Carolina for sure, whereas people will complain about our fishery, how many fish are around. And given there's a lot of different circumstances to to the reasoning behind that, not that our fishery is still good by all means, um, but it could be great. And people complain about it. And then they I'll like be like, all right, show up, you know, show up to this. And they'll be like, okay, and never show up, which is, again, totally fine. But don't complain about it if you're not going to show up. That's all. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and I'm exactly. sure you probably feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there, so I'm sure you know who Bob Clouser is, right? Yeah. Okay. 
so uh, he was on the Millhouse podcast um, at one point, and uh, he he was just talking about how in his section of River um, in Pennsylvania, um, they were seeing a huge decline in smallmouth bass, and they all thought it was due to pressure. There's too many boats. There's too many people fishing it. They're taking too much, like you know, all this stuff. Um, and he said that they finally convinced um, their state legislature to just change the limit from, to you know, from whatever the limit was down to one fish uh, under a certain size, under like 15 inches. And he said within three seasons of that, the fishery had completely gone back to what it used to be. Um, and it was just from the he said the boat traffic increased, the amount of people fishing them increased. It wasn't the fishing pressure, and people love the point that the fishing pressure. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it yeah. certainly affects fish. Um, he kind of proved through his fishery that you know these fish are they're gonna eat, they're gonna keep eating your flies. Like, as long as you handle them well and put these fish back, uh, they're they're and do it the right way, right? Not keeping them out of the water for crazy long, not not doing anything unethical to them, or you know, gilling them, or or you know, things like that. It's um, you can have a great fishery tons and tons of people fish these fish uh and it can still be great um because they even saw numbers increasing size of fish increasing um people catching massive smallmouth and i i think that is just like a huge positive to look at um because the first thing everyone says like you you know that just came to my mind because you know, you're talking about the guys who, who are constantly like y'all you should have seen it in my day now there's too many fishermen ruined it and it's like i had talked to so many guys like that that it's like wow, all these fishermen just like ruined it. And it's like, yeah, well, fishing pressure can ruin it um, when you don't have the right regulations in place. When you can just take, 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 and take, yeah, you're going to kill all the fish. And they're going to be gone. Um, and it's also about educating and just understanding like, hey, you're going to, if you want to release this fish, you know, you have every right not to release that fish if you don't want to. Um, but if you are going to release it, here's how you do it. You know, go ahead and pre-plan like, okay, we're going to keep it in the water. You know, we're going to get the photo of it and we're just going to put it back. Um, so you're going to release it and you know, you're going to release it anyway. There's no need to have it out of the water for a minute. You know what I mean? If you're going to kill it, sure. I, under, I, I can understand that. Um, I do full catch and release. That's just what I, I preach. And I stand by that. I haven't, I haven't killed a redfish in a long, long, long time. Um, so that, yeah, that's just my little soapbox thing that I, I always stand on, but it's been proven, you know, over and over again. And, uh, it's just something that, you know, if more people understood that, uh, I think there's not a lot of people that want to go out and just kill, kill, kill. Um, we see it a lot, but I think the average angler wants to go out, catch a fish, and just put it back. Uh, so it's just about educating on how to do that properly and, and you know, ways we can do that. Because that's something we can all do when we fish. And I think that's just a really easy way to, to help uh, what's going on. And we kind of owe it to the fish. You know, we are chasing them down and catching them. That's not exactly the most fun thing for that fish. <laughs> Yeah. You mean, you mean to say that they don't like hooks getting pushed through their mouth? <laughs> no, no. You know, they, they seem to not like it at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I, I agree with you. Um, I think it's a good thing that, that you're doing for sure. And I think it's respectable. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to come on here and, and give us a little, glimpse into uh your background into charleston the fishery there some little flood tide advice here and there um so thanks man i really appreciate it hey i appreciate you inviting me on um you know 
uh, I love being able to get up and, and talk about the stuff that I love to talk about and I love to do. And, you know, nothing in the world excites me quite like, like fly fishing and, and the media work I do. And, and I love being able to just tell that to other people because, um, you know, you never know who, who might hear this and be just like, wow, that's something, I want to try that or learn something new. And I feel like I'm always learning something new every time I pick up the camera or pick up a fly rod or listen to a podcast or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you allowing me to come on and, and just kind of talk. Oh, no worries. It was a, it was a pleasure. So we'll, we'll end with how, how can people find you, Dylan? You can find me on Instagram. My handle is Barker on the fly. Uh, any social media, that's me. I'm on YouTube. Uh, I don't do much on YouTube, but my Instagram or my website is www.barkeronthefly.com. Um, you can find any info you want to about me on there uh, or on Instagram. I'm on Instagram all the time. So that's a good place to reach me as well. And then uh, my phone info and anything like that, if anyone did want to go out on a charter or wanted to look into that, it's all on the website. Um, you can check it out there. And that's pretty much the best ways to reach me. Cool. So if we go on your YouTube, are we going to be able to find videos of uh, 11-year-old Dylan skateboarding? <laughs> Those are gone. <laughs> no, those things are they've been gone for a while um now, I, I used some like quick tying videos i'm working on some some video stuff right now one of my goals for the new year is to start producing more content for youtube um and actually being able to share more into what i do on, on that front and i kind of show people like not like what it's like to be a guide but like just what i do you know yeah. uh, i just want to show people what, what i get out and do and kind of let them experience that just through through uh through youtube because i you know kind of like i said at the beginning that's kind of how i got my my interest in a lot of stuff just consuming content and it being there and being like oh my gosh that's a thing i didn't know that was a thing um so yeah that, that's kind of the the idea so look out for that if you do want to find me on youtube i'm sure i'll be posting something soon right on man well it's great talking to you and uh i'll be looking forward to watching some of your videos here in the near future yeah, brother, absolutely. All righty. We'll see you.